This is a Zoom podcast done with Professor Duncan Forbes. It was only half an hour long, as Zoom would only give us that much amount of time. But still, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Duncan Forbes. I'm a professor at Swinburne University of Technology in, in Melbourne. And I, as well as doing some teaching, I do research. And my topic of interest at the moment is something called ultra diffuse galaxies from an observational point of view. Yeah. I have seen in some of your research in the past, you've looked at, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, uh, it's either global or global clusters. Globular. Globular clusters, yes. Globular I knew, clusters. I, yep. That's I, knew right. I, was, I knew I was going to butcher that. I apologize. Um, right. uh, my question regarding to those is, what can they tell us about the universe and the evolution of the universe? I know they are a spherical of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of stars, but I wonder what they can tell us about the universe. Yep. Well, if you had to pick something that you would call an astronomical fossil, um, a globular cluster would be would be an astronomical fossil. So they have the advantage they, they were formed shortly after the Big Bang. They are probably the first stellar systems to form after the Big Bang. So in that sense, um, many of them are you know 13 billion years old, but they're also relatively robust. So they've lasted the age of the universe have lasted 13 billion years. So, for example, when we look around the Milky Way, we can see around 150 globular clusters orbiting around the Milky Way. So they have survived the <laughs> 13 billion years of evolution of the universe. Um, and so they give us, uh, you know, they, they can tell us something about the, the early formation epochs of the universe that we that we have difficulty in measuring um, any other way. The only other way, of course, to do it is actually, you know, use something like a use a telescope that can see a long way back into the into the past and try to observe um, young objects, if you like, that have formed just after the, the the Big Bang by sort of going back in time, if you like. But the advantage of globular clusters is they're they're right here, they're right around us. So globular clusters are obviously very ancient. Um, with that being said, are they still forming today or is that something more so happened a long time ago and not so much today? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it comes down to a little bit to your definition. So sometimes, some, sometimes people refer to globular clusters as things that are just defined to be old, you know, let's say more than 10 billion years old. But if you ask the question, do we see star clusters forming today that have uh, a million stars, just like like our old globular clusters? And will they survive? If we were to come back, you know, in ten billion years' time and look at that young star cluster, would we call it a globular cluster? And so the answer to that, I think, is yes. So basically, star clusters are forming today that that will look look like globular clusters. Now, globular clusters are. Uh from what I can understand, are held together by the star's own gravity uh, pulling together. Is that correct? Yeah, the mutual gravity of all the stars, yes. Um, now, there's been some globular clusters where some uh, intermediate, I guess you could call black holes, have been discovered in the center of them, very small ones. Hmm. Uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, what's, from my understanding, Black holes 
basically eat matter and eat things. So I'm trying to wrap my head around how black holes can form inside of something without eating it, if that makes sense. Sure. Okay. First of all, sort of the, the caveat for every claim of an intermediate mass black hole at the center of a globular cluster, there's been a counterclaim. So personally, I, I don't think, you know, the jury's out. It's not at all clear to me that any globular cluster contains an intermediate mass black hole. But if it did, yes, the black holes do eat, if you like, the material that's around them. Um, so we have a, you know, we have a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way that's eating stars around it. But th that sphere of influence is still relatively small. You know, the, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way hasn't eaten us, right? <laughs> in the same way that it hasn't eaten, if it did exist, stars that are, you know, at the, near the center of a globular cluster as well. So, uh, yeah, no need to panic. <laughs> I sure hope not. The last thing I'd want is to be eaten by a black hole, as I'm sure everyone else wouldn't. <laughs> Indeed, that would be really spoil your day, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, well, you, you probably wouldn't know if it happened anyway, because apparently <laughs> if you did get eaten by one, you stretched out into a string, which I'm sure would probably die before we knew that happened anyway. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, that brings me to something else. Uh, so obviously we just talked about how uh, the gravitational pulls of each stars is what's holding the spherical globular cluster together. Mm -hmm. Let's go outside of that to, this is going to get a bit tricky, to dark matter. Um, now dark matter or invisible matter, dark matter is just the kind of fancy term we've given something to, we, we don't know what it is because obviously we can't mm -hmm. observe it because it doesn't interact with uh, normal matter. Um, could it be possible that dark matter is also having an influence on the globular clusters as well? That's why it's not expanding out. Uh, um, so, so dark matter certainly has has, has mass and, and and has you know gravi gravitational pull and so on. So, in that sense, it it, it certainly affects globular clusters. Um, there's a, there's a few astronomers that, that have speculated that globular clusters formed in little mini dark matter halos, but um, personally, I, I don't buy that theory. One of the reasons is, going back to one of your earlier questions, do we see globular clusters forming today? I think the answer is yes, and they, they pretty clearly are not forming in mini dark matter halos. So if they're not doing it today, you didn't need to have it happen a long time ago either. So in that sense, I think globular clusters are just dominated by stars. It's that gravity of the combined gravity of all the stars that, that keeps them together. And you know, they orbit around the halo of, of our galaxy, which, which does contain dark matter. So they will be under the influence of that dark matter halo, but that's not what keeps them together. Could you, um, for the listeners and myself, uh, explain a little bit more about dark matter halos? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, um, as as you as you said, they we don't see them directly, but we detect them indirectly due to their um, uh, you know, due to due to gravity. So, for example, if we looked at the Milky Way, we looked at the rotation of stars in the outer parts of the Milky Way. Um, we would see them moving relatively fast and they would be moving much faster than we would have predicted 
if we just looked at the distribution of stars in the Milky Way. In other words, there seems to be an additional mass component that doesn't emit light that maintains the speed of, of the Milky Way's rotation. And so that um, missing matter is, is what, we've, what we call dark matter. Now, there are other possibilities. You know, if we don't understand gravity uh, completely, um, then there are other possibilities where it's not actually dark matter, it's some other effect that's, that's causing that uh, you know, sort of extra speed of the stars going around. But um, most astronomers think it's, it's dark matter that gives you that, that explains you know, the, the, the speed of the stars. There's two things uh, that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, once said. Uh, I'll mention those two mm -hmm. things. Now, the first one is that the universe is under no impression to make sense to us, which <laughs> that that's a, a that's a pretty good statement. That one kind of blows my mind a little bit. Um, the second one is now I'd like to know your feelings on this uh, with your knowledge. He says that dark matter could simply be one universe's gravity spilling into another. Hence this multiverse theory that he wants to believe. Uh, there's no, I use the word want to believe because there's no yeah. evidence of it. But what are your thoughts on this being a possibility? Oof, yeah, I've sort of heard this. I mean, it's pretty hard to, to rule out. Um, I mean, you know, usually with a scientific theory, you want it to be falsifiable, right? That's, that's often the, the definition of a scientific theory. So um, you, it would be nice to have some predictions from from that idea or concept that you could test. And if someone I think, comes around and says, well, actually, you know, there aren't any predictions, it's not testable, then I would argue it's, you know, it's not science because <laughs> you can't move forward on that. So it's like the multi-universes things, it's just almost uh, impossible to test. So, um, you know, we, we, we try where we can. Um, maybe an analogy is the, uh, you know, you've come home at night, after having a drink and you've lost your keys, they could be anywhere between the pub and your house, but you may as well go look under a street light because that's where you've got more chance of finding it. <laughs> right? Not the that's fact that it's necessarily dropped it there, but you've got more chance of finding it there. That's actually a really good analogy. I, I like that. I might have to use that next time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, I was thinking of something today. Uh, so I was listening to a a podcast while I was walking my dog and I had a thought now obviously getting back to black holes we can't really test black holes either because to test something you have to get close to it obviously you don't want to get too close to a black hole and really the closest we ever got to a black hole is that image we recently had um so with that being said uh obviously black holes as we know them eat matter but we don't know if they spew anything either we know they emit light but we don't know if they spew anything back out is it possible now i am correct me because this could sound really dumb <laughs> is it possible that black holes are the thing emitting this thing we call dark matter uh i think simple answer is no <laughs> okay so um just backtracking a bit i mean 
black holes are you know a bit like dark matter in the sense that although we don't might have not direct observation we have a lot of indirect observations so for example in the center of the milky way you can see the stars some um, going around very fast around what appears to be you know a, a, a dense massive object which you know emits no light so the thing that's consistent with that of having a certain amount of mass within a very small radius is, is a black hole um, and observations that were conducted um, by by two two people, um, Reinhard Genzel and uh, Andrea Gez, were both awarded the Nobel Prize for their work on you know measuring the mass of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. So you know there's a lot of good indirect evidence. Um, we do think that there are black holes at the centers of all big galaxies. Um, but as far as I know, there's no theory that suggests that they're spewing out dark matter, and dark matter tends to be found in the halos of galaxies rather than at the centers of galaxies. Um, you also find dark matter, you know, between galaxies in, uh, in clusters of galaxies. So again, um, yeah, I wouldn't, no evidence that they're spewing dark matter. Uh what is our closest uh, known galaxy? Um, well, I guess it, de it depends how you sort of define it. Um, I mean, and Andromeda would be the nearest comparable galaxy to, to the Milky Way. Um, but of course, you've got the Magellanic Clouds, small and large. You've also got a galaxy that's been um, swallowed up and accreted and disrupted, the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy well wow. so there um it so its stars you know this is over the last few billion years has been accreted onto the milky way it was a small satellite and its stars you know spread out across you know within the halo of our galaxy so you know it's, it is actually possible you know you could look up at the night sky with your your telescope look at a star and that star was not born in the milky way it actually came from a a satellite galaxy, if you like, it's a, an alien star that's 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 been accreted. So, if if that counts as a galaxy, it certainly formerly was a galaxy. Then that is probably the nearest galaxy to us. Now you mentioned that galaxy being uh, swallowed, correct? Yeah. What swallowed this galaxy? I know, obviously, a satellite galaxy would something mm. be known as a smaller galaxy. So what? could possibly do such a thing just gravity so basically you know the milky way is very large but the mass of the milky way in total is um 10 raised to the power of 12 solar masses so times the mass of the sun so that's that's enormous thousand billion and so you've got a small satellite galaxy that gets too close to the to the milky way if effectively the gravity of the Milky Way just starts to swallow swallow up. It, it brings it in and it starts to disrupt um, that dwarf galaxy. So although the stars themselves are not disrupted, they're all sort of you know separated from each other. And you end up with a stream of stars across the sky, which eventually is just distributed amongst all, all the you know the stars of the Milky Way. Investigating these neighboring galaxies. Um, I'm not sure how thorough of an investigation we can undertake with them, but 
do they differ from ours much? There's, there's a fair variety of uh, galaxies in the, in the universe. So we're a pretty large spiral galaxy. Andromeda is pretty similar, but the, the, the Magellanic clouds are sort of um, dwarf irregular galaxies, we might call them. The other main type of galaxy is an elliptical galaxy. And they range from, from dwarf sizes up to, to giant sizes. Um, so the biggest galaxies in the universe are these giant ellipticals. So yeah, there's quite a variety of uh, types. How many galaxies are we aware of that are out there right now? Uh, lots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's think. Right, if... Um, it's it's you know sometimes it's been said as more than more than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth yeah i um, find that look i'm not saying that's not true but there's a lot of sand on the beach i mean yeah if... i know it's colossal isn't it okay well i don't know i mean another way to look at it is the um many years ago hubble space telescope took a deep image of the sky called the hubble deep field and in that image you know you could you could see, you could count up, I don't know, 10,000 10, galaxies or, or something like that, or, e or even more. Um, now, the area on the sky that that image represented was just, you know, your fingernail, small fingernail, or, or, or equivalent to a grain of sand, actually. I mean, it's not a grain of rice is what I meant. A grain of rice held at arm's length, right? It's tiny. So you take the fraction of the sky that a grain of rice represents, at arm's length and multiply that by, you know, 10,000 or whatever number of galaxies that, that, that Hubble saw. And that wouldn't be all of them because, you know, there will be some that would be fainter than what Hubble can see also. So do that calculation and you, you'll find that there's just billions upon billions of galaxies. And then you got people like Neil deGrasse Tyson who believe there's infinite amounts of planet and infinite amounts of galaxies. And it just... Well, I don't know. Depending, well, I don't know about infinite. That's a very large number. I mean, it does depend on what what shape you think um, the universe is, and if it continues to produce. Uh, I think there's more likely a um, a finite limit. <laughs> yes, I can't. Infinite is obviously it's a number we can't think of because it obviously goes on forever. Um, but then. I've heard some other uh, physicists and uh, scientists try and minimalize how big infinite actually is, but you can't minimalize infinite. Infinite is infinite. And then people will say it's infinite times infinite, but you can't times infinite. It's a number that almost doesn't even exist. Yeah. So I don't think there's infinite number of galaxies or, or planets. Um, but you know, de de defining exactly um, how far the universe goes uh, is <laughs> is indeed a difficult problem. It does depend on the sh on the shape of the universe. Yeah, um, and y you can sometimes it's too it's very hard to to visualize a you know in our three D world something that might exist in in four dimensions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you think that we just if the universe is just on the surface of a sphere, which is in another dimension then the, the, the surface of the sphere, can you can essentially just keep going 
around that surface of the sphere, right? There's no end is another way to say it. If you start and just keep going around, the you know, there's no end. Mm. It's not necessarily the same thing as infinite. Now, obviously, our universe is expanding, and we have observed that it's speeding up, not slowing down. Yeah. Now, is the universe like an elastic band where it'll reach a point where stretching is no longer an option and it could snap? Yes. So we used to think that's what if there wasn't any of this um, dark energy, which is providing perhaps that that expansion of the universe, that eventually would have the sort of the the big crunch. So you have the big bang that um, imparted the motions to the galaxies. The, the universe expands, but eventually. Um, the mass within the within the universe, sorry, um, pulls it all back again, and we have this big crunch. So, if you say like an elastic band coming coming back, now we don't think that's going to happen because of the discovery of dark energy. So, the most likely scenario for the universe is just that it just continues to expand ever more slowly, so that the distance between galaxies gets greater and greater. The universe just essentially becomes darker and darker, and uh, and eventually sort of you know dies a, a cold, <laughs> a cold death if you like. It's a bit depressing. <laughs> it's a little bit depressing, but I'm sure my lifetime will be long over when that happens. Um, we will eventually, with that being said, get to a point where with the things we observe today, we will no longer be able to observe because they've just travelled too far for us to observe. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. With everything expanding within our little bubble that we have of planets, due to the expansion, are they also traveling further away from us? I, th I think not. So um, although the universe is indeed expanding, on small scales, like the scale of the solar system, or possibly even the scale of the, the galaxy itself, the, the gravity that we have is enough to keep us intact, if you like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the solar system was, was able to survive uh, for a long, long time, um, I think it would, it would not be subject to the ex general expansion of the universe that would manage to hold itself together. I think I would probably cop a lot of uh, criticism if I didn't ask this question. Now, it's a very popular question today. I'm sure you've had it a million times, and I'm sure you're probably getting sick of asking, of being asked this question. You study other galaxies, and we just spoke about how many other galaxies could be out there, which mm -hmm. means how many other planets could be out there. You'd have to times that with how many other galaxies are out there. So there's billions upon billions upon billions. Do you think extraterrestrials are a thing? Or do you think in the paradox of, I think it's called Fermi's paradox, where if there was something, we would have seen it by now? Hmm. Okay, well, so extraterrestrial life, if it means um, bacterial life, I mean, so, so this is not my area of specialty, but look, if it was bacterial life, my, my expectation is yes, it's only a matter of time before we find it in the solar system. That's just my, my personal guess. Um, is there extraterrestrial intelligent life? 
Um, my guess is also yes, because as you said, there's just so many planets. You know, we we've, we've already you know just discovered uh, thousands of, of planets, and many of those are sort of Earth-like or in the, the Goldilocks zone where you might have liquid liquid water and around a star that's long lived and so on. So I don't see any reason at all why intelligent life wouldn't have developed on some other planet in our galaxy or in, or in other, other galaxies. Third part, though, is, you know, have those intelligent lives, you know, visited Earth or communicated? I think then the answer is probably no. I don't, we, don't, we don't have any evidence for that. We haven't had any communications. Um, but it's not to say that um, our searches for communications might not turn up something someday. Um, you know, we haven't really been looking for very long, and we don't look um, on. You know, we don't cover the whole sky. We don't cover all frequencies and so on. So, probably need to do do more in that regard. What was it in the beginning that made you interested in? astrophysics was there a time in your life where you were very young you sort of found yourself looking up at the night sky something interested you was it as simple as seeing the moon uh, was there something sentimental <laughs> yeah I, I, I guess in some ways looking up but i i did not come at this from the root of being an amateur astronomer i've never owned a telescope uh, never have still don't so I was perhaps more interested in uh, physics and um, the space program, I think, was an inspiration in its, in its early days for me. So I came at it more from, from that angle and then just and found the astrophysics side of physics the, the most interesting thing. And that's what I continue to do. Was there a point in your younger adult or child life where you knew what you wanted to do because as a child, you know, kids, we always say we want to be a rock star. We want to be an actor. We want to be an astronaut, something, you know, something grand, something larger than life. And then you find yourself uh, looking up at the night sky and thinking, hang on, I want to understand this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Certainly wanting to understand is, is, uh, is part of it. I guess, um, well, as I say, I so in at my um, university in New Zealand, I said I started out d doing physics and found the found the astronomy to be the most interesting. I wasn't sure that it was going to lead to a career anywhere. Certainly not astronomy <laughs> in New Zealand. Um, so after that, I I left to work in a ski field in Canada for a bit. Um, applied for one job, which was at the um, Hubble Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. So I was fortunate enough to get that job. This was on the basis of an undergraduate degree. So instead of returning to New Zealand after the ski field, I just went straight to, to Baltimore um, and started a job there in, in these sort of uh, what they called the General Observer Support Branch. So that was helping professional astronomers who were planning to use the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, plan their observations and get their data and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So I did that for a few years and enjoyed that. And then said, right, you know, I want to carry on in astronomy. And if you want to do that, you need a PhD. So off to back to university to get a PhD. 
Now, my uh, my wife, she's from New Zealand also, and it's funny that you bring up Canada. Uh, I think the skiing in New Zealand could probably challenge the skiing in Canada. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Skiing in New Zealand's good, but uh, well, it was an opportunity for me to go overseas, so that's, you know, uh, that's why I did it. In a different season, of course, it's not so easy to to ski, um, you know, around December time in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends, uh, I haven't spoke to him in quite some time, but he's a uh, French Canadian. And um, even he said sometimes Canadians can't stay in Canada in the winter just because of how blistering cold it gets and the snow just ruins everything. And But New yeah. Zealand's completely the opposite. I think it makes it even more beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. So your current uh, research, what did you say you were currently working on? Uh, I work on something called ultra-diffuse galaxies. They were only discovered in 2015, so they're a type of galaxy that's a very low surface brightness. Um, so in some ways, a new type of galaxy. And uh, they, 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 they also host these globular clusters, and that's one of the more um, interesting aspects um, of their study. We, uh, a few years ago, discovered a trend that if basically you count up the number of globular clusters uh, in a galaxy, it scales directly with the total, total mass of the galaxy. So just by counting them up, you can get some indication of you know, what's, what's the stellar mass plus the dark matter mass uh, around these galaxies. And so we don't, we don't understand how these galaxies form. And although we have models of how galaxies form, these particular ones have proven to be very challenging for, for the models. So it's a case of getting as much, you know, new observations as we can to try and understand their properties and then figure out how they, how they actually formed. And what's the current consens uh, consen consensus, sorry, uh, on those type of universes at the moment and how we understand them. Type of uh, uni universes, did you say? Galaxies? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, one idea is you just take a normal dwarf galaxy and you just puff it up and you make it bigger in size. Um, so that, uh, and so, and so they look like ultra diffuse galaxies. Um, another way to do it is to have, start off with a halo of dark matter but instead of forming the normal amount of stars, you just form a very small amount of stars that keeps the galaxy diffuse. So sometimes we call that model the sort of the failed galaxy model. For some reason, it's failed to form many stars. And again, we, we don't know why. We don't know which of these pathways, a, a puffy dwarf or a failed galaxy, is the main pathway to, to form these ultra-diffuse galaxies. What is a failed galaxy? You bring you say failed galaxy. Yeah. What what's failed. a failed? Yeah, galaxy? yeah. I'm just uh, sort of this is a, a picture we have. It fails in the sense that it has failed to form a lot of stars. So if we have a galaxy, let's say we put have a dark matter halo of ten to the twelve solar masses. That's that's the halo of the Milky Way. Then we expect something like the Milky Way to form, which is ten to the ten stars. These ultra-diffuse galaxies have more like 10 to the 8 stars. So 100th, you know, the, the, the mass of the Milky Way. In other words, you can, even though they're sitting in a very large halo, 
and you might have expected a normal galaxy to form, only a tiny fraction has formed. So, so why is that? Has, it all, has all the material been expelled? Uh, we, we don't know. Now, these failed galaxies, um, are they deemed failed because of their uh, shorter amount of stars, or do they tend to have a shorter lifespan? No, they, so it's probably it's just the fewer amount of stars. Um, they seem to be quite old, so they seem to have formed, you know, a, um, a long time ago, just, just the same epoch as, as many other galaxies. We see them, you know, across the universe in different environments and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, yeah, not so special, but uh, special in the sense that we, we don't really understand how they, how they form yet and why they form so few stars. Now, these uh, failed galaxies, do they, obviously they have stars in them, do they eventually form planets of their own? Or is, are they just so small and condensed that uh, they can't really form anything more than just stars? Uh, I guess we just don't know the answer to that. I mean, we can only detect planets um, that are very close to the sun within mm -hmm. our galaxy, right? We can't, in general, detect any planets in any other galaxy. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really hard to say what uh, whether they have planets in them or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really interesting stuff. I, um, I've i never heard of a f failed galaxy before. That's why I had to ask. Um, it seems like we, we are pretty limited on time. It seems we've only got five minutes left. I would uh, like to ask you just one more question before mm -hmm. we end sure. it. Black holes. I, I'm coming all the way back to the start of our conversation now. Mm -hmm. Do you think... Just because of their properties, I'm asking this, do you think there will ever be a time we know more about them? Because they're so far away at the same time. And just to get near one to test it is dangerous in on itself. How would we ever be able to test such a thing? Yeah, I don't think we'll ever get close in that sense, physically close. But we, you know, we, we, we test them in lots of ways, just in the same way that we, we test everything about the universe from our, from our spot, right? You know, we use telescopes, we use satellites. Um, we do this uh, multi-frequency ways. So we look in the optical or the infrared or we use X-rays. Um, and now we have um, gravitational waves, uh, another kind of, you know, messenger, if you like, of information about, about the universe. So yeah, you know, it's not it's not all it's not all lost or hopeless in the sense that we, we, we've learned a lot already, and I think we'll we'll continue to do so with um, all the ways that all of our our means of, of detecting what's going on. I guess what I'm trying to say, in terms of learning more about it, is what's inside a black hole because obviously mm -hmm. it's just a very deep abyss. That's yeah. more what I was trying to get at in terms of learning. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's very hard because, as you know, you know nothing, no no information material is going to leave the the, the center of a black hole. It can't ex ex you know, exceed the speed of light. So in that sense, it's going to be very hard to find out what's going on inside. So then maybe there you have to rely on theories and simulations and so on. Um, but our observations certainly give clues to what's around. The, you know, the, black hole or the accretion disk that feeds it that sort of thing you know, we can learn a lot that way 
And you bring up the speed of light. Now, I'm not too sure how quickly the expansion of the universe is traveling. We say there's no way to go faster than the speed of light. Do you think, because I'm not too sure, the expansion of the universe could break that theory? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, let's let's wait. You know, um, Einstein's general relativity has been tested, you know, a few a few times, and it's and it's always come up trumps. So, <laughs> if I was a betting man, I would be betting on on Einstein at the moment. Well, Einstein didn't even think black holes were a possibility. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but. Professor right. Duncan Forbes, I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast. I wish we had more time, but obviously the platform we are using only grants us a limited amount of time. I thank you for being here with me today, and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Good, good talking to you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.